welcome to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. My name is Daniel Levin, and this episode is the live recording from our first panel presentation, Diversity in Spaceflight, Then and Now. The panel has its own introduction, so I won't repeat all of it here, but I will say that we are planning to host more of these in the future, and I look forward to sharing more of these live events with you. After this episode, we'll be closing out our series on the Kamlucha shipwreck, talking about climate change and health, discussing the medical support for analog space missions, and discussing more historical tales from the Age of Discovery and beyond. We've got a lot going on here on the podcast, and I'm excited to have you aboard. Now here's the panel. Hey there, explorers. My name is Dana Levin, host of the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Tonight, we're hosting our first live event along with the Aerospace Medicine Student and Resident Organization's Diversity Committee. I am thrilled to have all of you here and deeply honored to be hosting a truly amazing group of humans. So I want to maximize the time we have with them, and I'm going to briefly introduce them on this, the 51st anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission entering lunar orbit. Their full bios will be on the post-attendee page when you leave the meeting. But tonight, we have Captain Ed Dwight, first African-American astronaut candidate appointed to that position by President Kennedy in 1961 with the intention of him being one of the first men on the moon, but later cut from the program for racial prejudice reasons. He is now an accomplished pilot, engineer, sculptor, and mentor to past, present, and future astronauts. We also have United States Marine Corps Major General Charles Bolden, retired who was the 12th administrator for NASA, leading the agency after a long career as a shuttle pilot and commander himself, and is now president and CEO of the Charles F. Bolden Group, serving as an independent director to a number of large corporations. We also have active astronaut and United States Air Force Colonel Michael Hopkins, who has spent over 166 days in Earth orbit and is scheduled to fly to the International Space Station only a few weeks from now, along with his colleague, active astronaut and United States Navy commander, Victor Glover, who has more than 3,000 flight hours in 40 different aircraft. The panel will be moderated by my close friend and brilliant scientist, Dr. Karen Ong, who is currently training with UTMB as a resident in internal and aerospace medicine, where I graduated from myself. Now, all of them have volunteered their time to talk about this critically important topic of diversity as living examples of how race has affected their own careers. Two of our panelists, Commander Glover and Colonel Hopkins, are even interrupting their hectic mission training flow only a few weeks before their launch, and our host Karen will leave the panel tonight to go take care of COVID-19 patients in the overwhelmed Texas medical system. So, my hat's off to you, and to the rest of us, please make sure you wear your masks and take COVID seriously so that we can keep organizing and hosting these kinds of events. You'll also notice a Q&A board where you can write in questions, and I'll be monitoring the Q&A board with medical student Nick Nelson from the Out Astronaut Project and the Exploration Medicine team. Obviously, we won't be able to have our panelists answer all of the questions, but we will try to get through as many as possible. So with that, Karen, panelists, virtual stage is yours. Mr. Dwight, thank you so much for joining us tonight. It's really amazing to have you, the pioneering, the first African-American astronaut candidate on the same stage with Charlie, another astronaut and NASA flight administrator, and then the next two humans going into space, Victor and Mike. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became an astronaut candidate, and how racism or discrimination affected your career trajectory? I had a, a, a rather, a, a, incredible flying career 
uh, and I flew maybe uh, 20 uh, to 25 different airplanes. Uh, I got, I, I did not expect, uh, I was very, very happy with it, with the job that I had. I did not expect uh, uh, in November the 4th, 1961, when I got a letter from Pentagon asking me if I wanted to go to experimental test pilot school and, and, uh, and, and as preparation to become the first after first Negro astronaut back in those days, it was called. Uh, and, and I, uh, I wasn't very excited about it because I, uh, uh, everybody around me told me to turn it down. Uh, but I, my mom talked to me, said, you know, you know, go ahead and go for it. And which is what I did. I applied, uh, not thinking that, uh, they had sent letters to a whole host of African-American candidates uh, here, not understanding that, that uh, when I got down here, I was going to be the only one there. And I, I was the only choice that they had to deal with. Uh, and, uh, and of course, you had uh, a Congress that was against it. Uh, uh, and, you know, the, whole, in the entire right wing of the, of, of, of the United States of America was against this idea. Uh, NASA was against the idea as well, uh, because there was a lot involved in, you know, in, in raising money for, for NASA and all this other thing, but bringing a black guy into this program too, too quickly, because this was only two years after the first seven uh, had, had been nominated, uh, and, uh, and, and it was more political than scientific, I ended up finding out. But... Uh, <laughs> I had two universes, uh, the Kennedy White House universe, which was now, and nobody understood this, but I was being handled out of the West Wing of the White House during this whole period of time. Uh, and, and, and so this was a more of a political fight uh, than the scientific uh, uh, exercise that, that, that I thought I was getting into. And, and, and so everything was working for me with the, uh, being, the president was running the fight. He was orchestrating the fight. So, so that part of it worked. But so you could understand what happened November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, when he was assassinated. So, uh, so my fortunes changed and everything changed. And President Johnson decided he wanted his own. And I was called in and explained uh, that it wouldn't be fun for for a Kennedy guy <laughs> to be going to the moon or any place else. You know, so. And so as, as a result of that, you know, that was, a, it, it turned into a big political, uh, you know, political food fight, really. Uh, and and I, 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 can, I can extol you with all kinds of things that happened to me during this period of time, but it would take too much of the panel's time to even deal with that. Suffice it to say, um, I, I stayed in so, uh, a couple of years after the president died, then I ended up resigning. Got out of the military and... Uh, uh, I, I was introduced, uh, I went to white school all the way through, so I, I didn't know anything about black history. <laughs> and somebody explained to me that uh, there were slaves and, and there, there were all kinds of things that happened before Ed Dwight came along. Uh, and so I was talking to, to becoming a sculptor of all, of all things. And uh, it, it all worked because I, I, had a, I was offered a, a scholarship as an artist when I got out of high school. So. I, I knew the art universe and my way around it, so I was very comfortable with telling the story of, of, of you know the whole African American story, starting in Africa, and, and so I've done 120, uh, 129 memorials, and uh, 
I keep my I, I keep my hand in the in the playing game when I say keep my hand in it because we we uh, we have a little group here in Denver where we train pilots and uh, and so I, I get involved in and in, in, uh, I, I matter of fact I had a flight service after I got out of the military uh, and, uh, <clears throat> so I I stayed in flying for quite a while uh, so right now I'm a full time sculptor and. And you know, and traveling around and trying to do good things right now. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mr. Dwight. And I should mention for the audience, if you'd like to read his amazing book, um, please go to his website. Um, uh, if you just search Ed Dwight, you'll find his sculpture website, and you can uh, read his book, which he was so kind to send me. I just want to say, besides being um, a renowned sculptor, he and a test pilot and an astronaut candidate, he did all this in the face of discrimination while being a single father for all of that. So my hat is off to you. Oh Any goodness. one of those would be an amazing accomplishment. And I just wanted to briefly say, um, you mentioned before this, uh, Mr. Dwight, that you actually trained Mr. Glover? Victor, well, is that well, the case? I didn't train him. <laughs> no, no. I, 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 we we were all a bunch of mentors uh, to Victor, and we all loved him, and and had, had all kind of wonderful uh, experiences uh, of you know following him and encouraging him and all that kind of fun stuff. Well, thank you for. Sh Go ahead, Victor. <laughs> I was just I was just going to say that uh, that would that was going to be my initial comment anyway. It's just how amazing it is to see these faces and that you're having this panel, and and I wanted to point out. It, it really is an honor. Um, you know, I see Mike all the time. He's a great commander. We have a lot of fun working hard. And then Ed and, and Charlie have been great mentors. And I was just looking at this picture. I was actually speaking to Ed uh, a, f a few days ago, and I sent him this picture just to make sure uh, uh, to, to, to set the, the, com the mood of the conversation. But that's a picture of a, a personal family friend, Willie Daniels, Guy Bluford, the first African-American to fly in space. Charlie Bolden and Ed Dwight, and um, at a ceremony we all went to, and that sculpture, uh, that award that I was holding, uh, was sculpted by by Ed. Um, and I've been fortunate to to be friends and, and to be mentored by everybody on this panel, and uh, and it truly is an honor and a privilege. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, I actually wanted to ask. Uh, Charlie, I know you are also a pioneer in so many ways as a former NASA astronaut and also a NASA administrator. What were your experiences like um, becoming an astronaut and after that? And did you find that racism or discrimination affected your training or career trajectory? You know, unfortunately for me, I came significantly behind Ed. And also, I was in the second group of space shuttle astronauts selected. So, Guy Bluford and Fred Gregory and Ron McNair had already blazed the trail. Plus, there were six women in the first group, and I came two years later. So, um, you know, there is always, and this even goes today, there's always going to be discrimination and racism. The, the thing I think many of us have learned is that you, you, um, you don't let it get in your way. Uh, you don't waste your time trying to explain to people why you're there. And you just go ahead and do your job and let your performance speak for speak for yourself, you know. And I, um, I, I tell people, it may not may not agree, but the world is much better off uh, because of the incredible sculpture sculptor 
that that we gained as a result of his not being in the in the space program. And and I think in many ways that is far more lasting and and far more um, really symbolic than than um, than it might have been otherwise. But he he probably disagrees with that. No, I don't. <laughs> not at all. But you are right, Charles. <laughs> Um, I was just going to say, uh, Mr. Dwight, it seems that actually your predisposition for art came before you were interested in aviation. Is that the case? Oh, oh yeah, yeah. I was, I was born, I was really born to the art. I, I was, uh, I, I started school when I was two years old, and I was a class artist in preschool, elementary school, high school, and uh, I, I was, that's that's all I wanted to do the rest of my life, actually. When my when my dad asked me what I was going to be, I said I was going to be an artist, and he said, "No, you're not. You're going to engineering school, and you're going to be an engineer." Uh, and uh, I, I so this this engineering stuff was a diversion for me, <laughs> to be totally candid with you. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Um, so I was going to address the next question um, to Victor. Um, can you tell us a little bit about? how you got to the point where you are, the next, one of the next astronauts to go into space on the brand new certified dragon. And if you found that racism or discrimination has affected your career in any way up to now. Well, I'll, I'll say that, uh, you know, along with the, the hard work um, that I think is just an important part of all of our careers, that I did have amazing mentors of all stripes. Um, Seeing the exploits of, of one of our first female shuttle commanders is what really stoked my interest in this. Um, seeing uh, Pam Melroy present at a, an engineering conference when I was going through test pilot school is, is what really made uh, the pursuit of this professionally a reality for me. But way back before then, when I was uh, brand new in aviation, I, I was uh, going through flight school and I went to the officers club one day and I ran into a gentleman there and walked up to him and just introduced myself and turned out to be one of the best things that I ever did is uh, a gentleman by the name of, of, of Lynn Walton, who is to this day still a mentor to myself and every other uh, pilot of color that I know in the military and the airlines. And he made a point to introduce me to General Bolden. And then I wound up working for him when I was learning to fly the F-18 in San Diego. And, uh, and then again, as an astronaut, uh, when I showed up here in, in 2013. And so, you know, uh, I, I, will, I will tell you, in the Navy, we have these same discussions about how do we create more African-American generals and admirals. And one of the questions, one of the answers to that question that I found to be really interesting was by having more African-American admirals and generals. And so I can definitely tell you that along with just loving to fly and being a, a part of the leadership structure in the Navy, which has been an honor and a privilege, that having gentlemen like Ed Dwight and Charlie uh, and, and colleagues like Mike Hopkins uh, is, a, is a reason, very much so the reason that I, I get to sit here with you and talk about flying in space soon. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, this is to Mike. Um, thank you for being here and also taking the time out of your busy schedule. I'm just wondering, have you had experiences where you've observed discrimination against your colleagues or or even yourself and notice that it's really affected the quality of your training, your mission readiness, or anything like that? 
You know, first, I'd, I'd just like to say it's a it's an honor to, to be a part of this panel. Um, you know, I, I certainly can't walk in the in the shoes of, of these other gentlemen that are here today. Um, but uh, I, I can certainly try and understand and empathize with uh, the, the things that they've had to go through over their over their lives and careers. Um, you know, I, I grew up on a on a farm in Missouri. And, uh, and a small community, a couple thousand people. And there weren't any African-Americans in this community. There weren't any minorities in this, in this community. Uh, but I don't ever remember race or racism being a, a, a topic. It uh, just it was never discussed. Um, and I don't ever remember it being discussed, but I don't ever remember racism either that, that uh, you know, the, how, how horrible that can be. I, I just never had any association with it. Um, and then I went to college at the University of Illinois, played football there, um, and, and got to be a part of that team, got to go through Air Force ROTC and, and into my career as a flight test engineer with the Air Force. And, uh, you know, one of my first bosses, uh, it was kind of interesting, was uh, SMC. He was the SMC commander at the time. And that was uh, General Lester Lyles. And if any of you know General Lyles, he is he is very impressive. At the time, I think he was a three star. Um, and and I just remember, uh, you know, I had to brief him at one point in time, and and I just walked out of that briefing with extremely impressed with the the type of person he was, the type of leader he was. Um, and and so you know, again, in in my experience i i didn't see it and really what's been great about uh getting to be a part of a crew with victor is he has opened my eyes um we've we've had an opportunity to to uh, share our backgrounds and our stories and our and our life experiences and and he's he's opened my eyes to things that that um you know right or wrong i just never saw never never understood and, and to include that uh, the type of racism that you're talking about that that is out there and and so I think that's been a good thing and I think that a panel like this a discussion like this if it can help open the eyes of other people uh, like me that um, you know we just tend to go through life and not and not necessarily give it a lot of thought because it doesn't impact us um, on a day-to-day -day basis like it, like it impacts other people and so if this panel can, can help bring that out, help bring that awareness to other folks, um, I, I think that's a great thing. And so I, it's a privilege to get to be a part of it. Thank you so much. I had one thing, you know, I, you, your question about the impact of racism. I think the comments that every one of us has made so far, particularly Mike, um, you know, just think of what, uh, what he would have missed had he stayed in a community like the one in which he grew up. Uh, that's the impact of racism. That's an impact of whether it's intended segregation or not. And so none of us would be the people we are today if we had to stay in that environment. I grew up in the segregated South. I would not have been. Ed and I, we, he, we never talked about this, but he and I both on the 22nd of November uh, 1963, our worlds changed. Both of ours did. Uh, he probably knew he was not going to become an astronaut. And for me at the time, I knew I was not going to the Naval Academy because because of segregation in South Carolina, I couldn't get an appointment uh, out of the state of South Carolina. And I was counting on Vice President 
Lyndon Johnson giving me a vice presidential appointment. And, and with Kennedy's assassination, that went out the window. And, and were it not for the fact that I just said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shoot for the moon, sort of, I wrote a letter to the president and told him I knew I wasn't eligible for a presidential appointment, but I needed help because I really wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And then things worked out for me. But, but I think we, all of us on the panel, are, are, are object lessons in the advantage of diversity and the advantage of getting rid of racism and segregation and discrimination. Thank you so much for your comments, Charlie. And I think the thing that really struck me, um, Mr. Dwight, in reading your book is I, any one of the things that you've accomplished, being a sculptor, being a test pilot, being a dad, uh, finishing astronaut school, studying relativity out of, you know, the library because you just wanted to, any one of those would have been an extraordinary accomplishment. To do all of them simultaneously in the face of such barriers was extraordinary. And you ask, and I wonder the same, like what could you have done without all of those challenges in your way? I, I feel like we're privileged to have you, but you know, the world has lost out in some ways in seeing what you could have done or what not only yourself, all the other children of your era that didn't get that opportunity. Well, uh, I, uh, if, if, if that's in a form of a question, uh, I, uh, I was taught uh, by my mom th that I was an okay kid uh, from the time I can remember. Uh, every night, from the time I was born to the time I left home, uh, my mother walked in my, my little alcove there and told me she loved me and that I was the most incredible guy in the whole, uh, that I was, I was God's gift to the whole earth. Uh, and after a while, I started believing it. <laughs> uh, 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 and when you when you have somebody like that that you can't disappoint, uh, you know, I have a little thing in my speeches. Uh, you know, I talk about love a little bit and the, and the responsibility of love and what, what what happens to you when somebody says they love you, uh, uh, and and all of a sudden uh, you owe them something. Uh, and so with my mom beating me over the head about how cool I was and how, how much she loved me, I had, I had to go out and do things. And, I, and, and disappointing her was, was out of the question. Uh, and, and it was always sticking in, in my head, uh, it, no matter what I was challenged with, it, it was always sticking in my head that I can't disappoint this woman. Karen, can I, can I add uh, something to what, what Ed just said? You know, NASA has officially assigned uh, Mike and I to this mission, and he is my commander. And I think one of my primary jobs is to make his life easy and, and to, uh, to get through this successfully uh, with him. And just like I don't want to let him down because he's my commander, I, I look at Charlie and I look at Ed and the long line of folks. Guy Bluford, when he comes for his annual physical, he usually calls and, and lets us know he's coming and we get to have lunch and fellowship and I you know and every astronaut that's flown in space since him and to Lynn and to my grand my grandparents I you know that legacy of of hard work and overcoming comes right up to now and so you know Ed mentioned it not wanting to let them down you know I the same way that I work for Mike directly I indirectly work for that entire legacy that comes right up to today and so I think that is a very powerful, it is, it's love. It's, it's not a burden, it's love. It's, it's uh, definitely done out of love. 
Oh, thank you so much for that, Victor. So I guess that brings us to our next question. I really wanted to ask, you know, it's 2020. It's been decades since integration and what is popularly known as the civil rights movement, although of course there's still more work to be done. Um, the 2019 U.S. Census showed that African Americans were about 13% of the U.S. population, but to the best that I could find out, I didn't see official statistics, about only 4% of astronauts. Why is that? Uh, yeah, I, I'll start. I thought you were going to ask a question about medicine because, um, <laughs> you know, my daughter is a plastic surgeon and she was recruited to the Baylor College of Medicine by a, an incredible man by the name of Dr. Jim Phillips. And Jim's entire, he's retired now, but Jim spent his entire career trying to get the percentage of African-Americans in, in the medical field, you know, as doctors above 6%. And uh, most of the time that he was in medicine, it, it hung around 6%. I learned the other day that we're now down to four point some odd percent. So it, it, it could be a combination of things. One, some kids, we don't inform kids about the availability of that field, the importance of that field. I hope that out of this pandemic and the, the George Floyd, um, Breonna Taylor, Saga, everything, that we will help young black kids, young kids of color understand that they have a role to play in medicine and in, and in, and in things that, you know, in addition to the, to the becoming an astronaut things that, are, that make life better for people here on the planet. So I, I think the Z generation is hopefully going to help us see those curves turn up, whether you're talking about African-American representation in, in STEM areas or African-American representation as doctors or whatever, whatever it is, I hope. Just wondering if anyone else um, might have thoughts on that. Uh, uh, oh, oh. Go ahead, sir. Uh, you know, b being exposed to uh, to an enormous amount of pu uh, publicity during that short period of time that I was exposed to the public because I I was taken from zero to 125 knots uh, in in a hurry of, uh, about the public relations aspects of, of of what I was doing. One of the things that I noticed during this whole period of time has to do with how how the black community recognizes. Is people of accomplishment, uh, and we we have a tendency, and I and I, I and I'll take whatever blame that for the black community that, that I can take uh, about not honoring. I, I was very disappointed that uh, Gown Blufer, who was the first black man in space, uh, how long it took for the NAACP to, to give him an award? How long it took him for the Essence of Awards to give him an award? How long it took for the entire black community? To, to this man ought to have sculptures of him all over this country. Uh, and and, and that, I think we've been remiss in, in our own community about honoring people uh, in medicine, in law, uh, uh, in science. And, and I, I watch this. Uh, I'm a kind of a watcher of, of you know, uh, how this, because uh, I do talk to, along with the rest of the people, I do talk to, a lot of the black kids, but uh, the issue is I can't get enough. I can't get to them enough to explain to them what, how they can do it, how they can be involved in it, uh, uh, and and to make uh, to lionize uh, uh, 
the 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 the, the uh, African Americans of accomplishment that are not in entertainment, that are not in basketball, that are not wide receivers, uh, that are in medicine and science. And I'm really that's my biggest frustration. At 87 years old, that's my biggest frustration. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mr. Dwight. Victor? Mike, were you going to, did you want to comment as well? Go ahead, Victor. I'll, uh, I'll jump in at the end. Okay. I, I um, mentioned it earlier, but I think that, well, you know, we can go back through the history of this. It depends on how far back you want to go, you know, and, and start digging into the, the data. But from the systemic issues to the perception issues, but, you know, I think it's important to to, to also look at where we are now, if you the statistic you quoted may be over the history of the astronaut program or the American astronaut program, by my count, there are 48, 47 maybe of us active, and there are four black astronauts in the office, which puts us at just above 8%. And it's also important to realize how, how impactful one individual is. If we hired one more or we lost one, that would affect that number by 2%. So we are not far off of the, the nation's demographics. Uh, we also live in Houston. If you look at the demographics for Houston, that number would also change. And so, so anyway, uh, the reason I bring that up is because the office right now, I think, is sitting in a good position. My class, uh, we were selected in 2013. And in addition, addition to the, the, the ethnic diversity, um, the background diversity, uh, it's also the first time NASA selected a class that was half men and half women. And I think that that is important to recognize for a lot of reasons. The story that we tell that Ed was talking about, it's important that we put in some of those good nuggets so that, that young folks realize there's a path for me there. And so I, I think it's important to highlight that there, there is some progress. We do have work to do, absolutely. But there, there has been some progress. And so telling that story, crafting it, I think is a, a common problem in science and technology, period. And so when I talk to young folks, I usually bring up a few names. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates, uh, uh, and, and Steve Jobs, uh, Mike Bloomberg. And what, what do we know about those folks? And young people usually know that they run very large companies. And I ask them what they study. And they say business and accounting, finances and economics, and it's no, they all studied science and technology, STEM. And it's important that, you know, those folks have gone out and created something that is economically and culturally sticky, powerful. And they started by having a very solid analytical uh, education. So something in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And I think we in the STEM workforce have a storytelling problem and we have to learn to communicate better because the Olympic athletes and the, and the national sports associations have a, a really good uh, uh, head start on telling those stories and captivating folks, just like what Ed was talking about. So um, being able to communicate uh, uh, our successes and where we need help uh, is something I just think that the engineering and, and science workforce needs to think about in general. To, to continue to attract young people. Thank you so much, Victor. So I'll, I'll probably put a little bit different uh, uh, spin on it because again, I, I don't know what it's like to, to grow up in a uh, minority community, a black community or anything of that nature. But I, 
I was a part of uh, the uh, the last selection board, and I did have an opportunity. You know, you get to hear uh, people that are interviewing, and and I was really struck by by one interview in particular, where it was a person that um, had come from another country, had immigrated to the U.S. and um, and had become a citizen and, and then eventually applied and, and got to an interview. And I remember this person talking about where they grew up in, in their country that they never dreamed of, of being an astronaut. It just wasn't, it wasn't something that they even thought about. It wasn't something that, that even seemed in the realm of possibilities because you know that country didn't have a, a space program, a human spaceflight program. And, and so it just never crossed, crossed her mind or their mind that, that that's something they could do. And, and so that really hit me because, you know, I grew up in a, in a small rural community. We didn't have a lot, but we had dreams. And you could dream about being anything that you wanted to be. And, and so I think, uh, you know, I think that's a good place to start is make sure that, that everybody in, uh, you know, the black community, the minority community, you can be whatever you want and and people like that are on this panel can show you the way and so getting that message out and encouraging people to dream big um if we can do that somehow i, I think that can also help um and and get that diversity thank you so much mike um charlie i guess my question goes to you i know we had had some email discussion about how to get more African-Americans and minorities involved in medicine and or science, technology, all these different fields. Um, what kind of concrete steps do we need to take um, to move, move the needle forward? Victor hit the nail on the head. We, we who are in this business have to become storytellers. Uh, we pr frequently we pride ourselves in saying, well, I'm a, I'm a scientist or I'm a, you know, an engineer. I don't have time for that other stuff. We've got to make time for it. Otherwise, we're not going to get these kids. I, I mentioned Dr. Jim Phillips before. One of the things that he instituted at, at uh, Baylor was something called Saturday Morning Science. And uh, Mike, I don't know whether you, either of you or Victor have seen it, but it's still around. And it's been around for about 20 years where he takes kids from the inner city of Houston and on Saturday morning brings them into Baylor at 8 a.m., feeds them breakfast. Uh, and then brings in people who are in the tech fields to talk to them about what is possible, things that they never thought about, that they never knew existed. And when I got involved with him, we put them on little yellow school buses and we brought them down to JSC for the day, to the Johnson Space Center. And I mean, to see these kids, their eyes just get big because they were having astronauts show them around Building 9 where all the mock-ups are. And, and they never dreamed of that. It's like the young, the, the person that, you know, the applicant that, that, that Mike's talking about. We have got to help them understand what's possible. Um, yeah, we're struggling and we're going to keep struggling. And, and there is segregation and there is discrimination, both overt and covert. But, but we cannot allow that to stop us because we've got to tell the good news stories in addition to talking about how we're going to overcome all this other stuff. So we've got to become better, better storytellers and present uh, forums where these kids can see what's, what the art of the possible is. Absolutely. And thank you so much for your comments. I know one of the reasons beyond dis having this discussion is the aerospace students and residents organization really wants to increase 
the diversity of our membership. And we thought that having you all as um, role models, basically, and to tell this story would help us reach out to um, African-American medical students who might want to become astronaut physicians someday. So thank you for being here. Um, sorry. I wanted to bring the next question back to um, your experiences in everyday life. I think what was so striking to me about reading Mr. Dwight's book was, you know, when he went to, I think, Alabama to train, his life outside of training and becoming a test pilot was very difficult because it was segregated and things of that nature. And those are additional barriers that maybe a, a non-African-American test pilot would have had to face. I'm just wondering, do you experience um, discrimination in your everyday life today? Um, and does that affect your training? And this can be to anyone on the panel. Karen, I, I um, yeah, I appreciate that question and that perspective. I, I uh, am so busy uh, with Mike. I think we, you know, we are gainfully employed getting ready for this mission so that when NASA calls us, we, we can uh, show up and perform and do our job. I, I wouldn't say that um, I feel that I suffer the effects of discrimination on, on, a, on a daily basis. I would say, you know, with things going on around the world uh, right now, that there are discussions that I have with my children. As a parent, I want to prepare them. My oldest kid will be a senior next year. So I want to prepare them to be able to go out into that world where I won't always be there to filter or interpret for them. And so, you know, that, that affects things, um, you know, that, that I might not, may not have to teach them if I had adopted a kid that, that, that was white. And, and, you know, as they left the home, I, I would still teach them those lessons, but I just, I may not have the urgency. Uh, my kids may be affected greatly by the way that they look you know if they're out too late if they're in a car with someone who gets pulled over or they get pulled over themselves if they apply to some position that's really elite at a university or in a company those those things always open the door for discrimination on their gender or their race i have four daughters and so i i would say that that's the place that it shows up the most in my life is in in thinking about how i prepare my children and how i parent and and the things that my wife and i have to consider as we as we parent um but you know i want to add one other thing to this as well because it, i guess when i think about my career most of my career i've been a naval officer and in the navy um we've had our issues as well uh race riots on a carrier as we were operating in Vietnam. I mean, that had an operational impact. Our history is not uh, the best in this issue, but recently uh, in my career, I felt it actually has been a positive, a great positive effect on my career. When I show up to a squadron, I was often the only black pilot in the, in the unit. And for that reason, a lot of the young black Filipino Hispanic uh, enlisted folks or younger black pilots in other squadrons would reach out and, and, and ask me for my input, mentorship, career advice, or sometimes just to give me a high five and say, I've never met a black pilot. I've heard that quite a bit. And so um, 
that I bring that up for a couple of reasons. One, it uh, it's a way that that race has impacted my career, but in a positive sense. But it also opens a door of uh, responsibility and and accountability. I always took that as an opportunity to to mentor, but also to listen. And so that continues to happen today. And and I think that that's a way that that my race has actually had a positive impact on my career. It's not always negative. I'm going to throw one thing out that's similar to um, to kind of cap off what Victor was saying. Um, like him, every time I've been in training for anything, I'm so focused on the training that I miss frequently what's going on around me. I miss the discrimination that's going on. And generally, it's to other people. And when we get together for beer or, you know, go to happy hour and I'm the only black there, uh, and race comes up, someone may slip and make the statement, but you know, you're different. What I have learned over time is if I'm doing the right thing there and I didn't always do the right thing, I stopped them in their tracks right there and said, how am I different? What makes me different from that person that you just discriminated against or you didn't want to talk to? And I mean, you know, I don't mean getting in people's face, I tell people I'm now the angry black man. I'm, I'm, you know, Ed can relate to this. He's 80 something. I'm 73, and uh, I think what what that age gives us the opportunity to do is just say, look, we have seen all this stuff. We've been through this. I don't want to go through this again. And I don't want my Victor mentioned his daughters. I have three three granddaughters. I don't want them to go through that again. And so it, it's my obligation to speak up and say. I am not different. I am just like them. Uh, people like to say, but that's not who we are. This isn't who we are when we talk about people in the U.S. with everything that's going on right now. I got news for you. This is who we are. We are not good right now. None of us are. And we've got to make it right. So we've got to stop and think about how do, how do we want to take this idea, which is the United States. This is, people talk about flags and all that other kind of stuff. We're built on one thing. It's the idea, of, you know, of a, of a democracy. And, and the most important thing in there is the Constitution of the United States. And it's imperfect. And uh, we've got to make that document, that, that thing that drew up the system, work for everybody. It doesn't right now. And, and that's our job, is to make it work for everybody. Thank you so much for that. Um, we're just about to shift over to audience questions. Um, I just want to see if any of you had anything else uh, you wanted to add before we open it up. So, Karen, yeah, I'll add something. And, and uh, John Walden has has talked about what is different between you know he when people he would challenge them with that and. And, uh, you know, one of the great things about being on a crew with Victor is has made me realize or, that we are not different. He and I, when you go back through our growing up, our college careers, our military careers, and now our NASA astronaut careers, I mean, we are the same. Um, you know, he, his focus on his family um, and, and how that drives so much that what he does. Same thing has driven and, and been a, a major uh, a priority in my life as well. Um, our love of, of flying, our love of sports and, and, uh, and competing and, and just being a part of something bigger than both of us. And, and so 
Um, General Bolden, when you say that, yeah, what is the difference? I, I don't know any difference between, uh, between Victor and I. I love him like a brother, and I am so excited to get to go into space with him. Thank you so very much. All right, so, oh, go for it. I feel the same way. I was just acknowledging what he said. Love him like a brother. Well, um, now we are, I'm going to start with some questions for our audience. Um, so the first one here says, thank you so much for this opportunity. And they're wondering, what hope do we have that the first woman or next man to set foot on the moon will be a person of color? You got a lot better chance of it now than you did during the Apollo era. Yeah. Because there, because there is representation in the office. And as Victor said, you know, you add, you add two more women or two more people of color, and, and boy, you're, you're talking about serious percentages there. Yeah. <laughs> and a pretty doggone good chance. <laughs> yeah. You know, our class was, uh, was eight people total. And if you look at the size of classes, uh, when, in the shuttle era, there was a time when classes would be more than 40 people. And so our class was one of the smaller classes in a very long time. And I personally, just because of the, the, the neat history, I like to go back and look at that original seven, the Mercury seven. If you look at our class, it just is a sign of that progress. And while, you know, most of those folks in that class were heroes, in my opinion, and I look up to what was what happened where the country was is different. And that is evinced by my class has experiential diversity. We have scientists, engineers, military officers, but all different stripes. One of the military officers in my class is a doctor. And uh, you also have four men and four women. And so those things are a part of why the likelihood goes way up because as Charlie said, the, the, the numbers are there. And you know, Mike was on a board that uh, we also have to continue to, to choose folks that represent the best and brightest of all of the people in this country. And, and I think that we are all focused on, on making sure that that continues. Thank you so much. Um, so there's another question. Um, this is from Anushka. What is the biggest barrier in the system that is one area we can target to help bring about the changes we've discussed? Um, and what should people, I assume of color, who are looking for opportunities to change do to help change happen? Oh, Anushka, good question. You know, I, um, I, well, several things, it, particularly because, you know, you're in an, in, you're in an environment right now where um, you can go into the community and find young kids uh, and help them understand why you turn to medicine. And I'm assuming you're, you know, you, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you've chosen medic medicine as your, as your career field. But, but again, going back to the storytelling, uh, as a, you should tell them why you chose medicine, why you're excited about it, what makes you stick, although it's really hard. Uh, I'm not a doctor, never went through med school, but let me tell you, watching my daughter is hard. <laughs> and and there, there is great value in explaining to somebody why you put yourself through the adversity that you do, uh, because there is something bigger than you that you're trying to attain. Mike, 
Mike commented about this earlier when he said he and Victor, you know, are after something that's larger than they are. And I think all of us uh, are always trying to make sure that we make life better here on the planet for everybody because we are about making making the world a better place. And that's much bigger than any of us individually. And I agree. That is a, a great question. And and more than I would want to give you advice in that, and, and I could talk at, at length about some things I would tell you to do in addition to this, but I would go back. The history and the data is there. If you, Charlie mentioned it earlier, we need to uphold the values in our constitution. Yes, that document is flawed. Article one, section two, clause three, about the three fifths of a person is still in there. But we, we also know that that document was meant to grow with our country. And so understanding the history of this issue means no matter how long, whether you were in the civil rights movement or whether you came to some new realization as this George Floyd movement has swept the globe, there's still a trail of history that you can become familiar with and you can read those foundational documents, our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, as amended today to understand what those ideals that we should, we already profess. I have raised my hand and sworn to uphold and defend against enemies foreign and domestic because they are such powerful words. Go back and read the history and get caught up to, to why we have arrived where we are today. And then that puts a whole new context on the movement, what that means, and, and the energy uh, or where you could put your energy today. And it makes those contributions of your time and service, contributions of your money or contributions of your uh, meaning, uh, emotion, more meaningful. Thank you so much, Victor. Um, for our next question, and this is to Victor. Um, most, the question from the audience is, many young people don't understand what microaggressions are. Did you experience any issues? Um, and how did you deal with them? Help me know too, Victor, because I, I was on a panel last week. I had no clue what it was. I had to go look it up. Well, I, uh, well it's like saying, well, I guess, you know, the term passive aggressive um, is a term that I think a lot of people are familiar with. but. So um, are you going to have to deal with small examples or covert examples of people's internal feelings? I think that's always going to be there, right? You're always going to have people who may not like you for whatever reason, fill in the blank. It doesn't have to be based on skin color. It can be based on all kinds of things. And so microaggressions are just another form of aggression. Sometimes we over you know, uh, explain or hyper uh, hyphenate these terms um, like hate speech, uh, you know, I hate crime. Crime is the problem, though. The, the fact that people have hate or dislike is always going to exist. And so have I dealt with them, like Charlie said earlier, focusing on on trying to do my best and to, to be a good father and a husband. I've usually been a little um, uh, absent minded about maybe some of the things going on around me because I was focused on on the, the task at hand. And so that's been a part of it for me is having something to focus on and, and including my family. And so that's been a, a, a great um, uh, way for me to, to sort of get through is my high school football coaches would say, keep your head down and keep your feet moving. It's helping me to keep my feet moving. Um, but um, 
dealing with um, more overt signs of it, I mean, it depends on, you know, I've had to deal with law enforcement that I thought was treating me a certain way based on the way that I looked and not who I was actually. But I also have a father who is a retired police officer and I understand that profession. And I also understand the situation it puts me in and the risk that comes with it. Doesn't mean it always feels good. And I think that's really, I, I'm making a longer response than I really want to. I'm gonna say this and then I'm gonna stop talking. It, we don't have to like one another to love one another. And that's a really big part of this in my opinion is whether someone likes you doesn't impact whether or not they treat you with respect. And so I think that decoupling those things are some, sometimes when the older folks talk about the younger folks in this generation, they're actually onto something. And I think one of the things about this generation is we put in uh, too much emphasis on liking and wanting to feel good about everything. Working hard means sometimes you don't feel good about it in the moment, but you do it anyway because it's what needs to be done. And likewise, you don't have to like everyone that you come across. But if you can recognize their humanity, you can love and respect them, uh, even if you don't feel that you like them. And so that's, for me, I think the, the bigger focus is I haven't always been liked, but I've always tried to treat people with respect and love. And in the end, if you do that, I think they might actually think that you like them. Here, and I'll take the opportunity, to, you know, what Victor just talked about, that's John, that's Representative Congressman John Lewis, the late, the late Congressman John Lewis. He, uh, I had the privilege, like everybody now remembers the time that they met John Lewis. Uh, I, I tried to talk him into voting for the space station long, long, long time ago before we had a space station. And, and I just learned uh, after his death that he cast the deciding vote that saved the space station uh, after he told me he wasn't going to vote for it. Um, but but he, he taught me uh, what he tried to teach me was exactly what Victor just says. You don't have to like everybody. Uh, but you've got to exemplify, you've got to extend love to them because love conquers all, to be quite honest. You know, you cannot win by, by, by showing the hatred that somebody shows toward you, you know, trying to put it back on them. It, it just doesn't work that way. Victor's absolutely right. Thank you so much. Um, so I guess, let me see. We have a lot of young folks um, on this, um, college students and beyond. Um, we're wondering what, do you have any final messages for these people? And I actually, sorry, let me back up. The question is really, the younger students want to know, and we've had multiple people ask, what should they do if they want to become astronauts or sculptors or engineers or physicians someday? I think the, the, I guess the easiest answer and, and really the, the best answer is you, you've got to find what you're passionate about and you got to, you got to pursue that with all, with all your heart, with everything. Um, and, and so for example, for becoming an astronaut, uh, whether you become an astronaut by being an engineer or a physician or a pilot, um, the, the great thing about that is if you love being those things and the astronaut uh, doesn't work out, you're still okay. And, and so that's the, uh, that's the beauty of it. And so, you know, that passion, that uh, drive, that uh, desire uh, comes out when you're talking to people and you're interviewing people. 
and uh, and so you know that if they are they love what they're doing that much, then that's easily extendable over to uh, the field of being an astronaut as well. And so to me, that's that's one of the biggest factors. Uh, do what you love. Find find what that is. Find what it is that that just that makes you tick and, and go after it 110 percent. And and I would uh, I just reiterate. I try to say this every chance I get to speak to young people. I say three things con consistently: be gritty, uh, meaning you know hardworking, persevering, gritty. Not greedy, G R I T T Y. Be gritty. Be a lifelong learner inside and outside the classroom, and to try very hard to be a good person. And um, I think whatever you're trying to do, technical or non-technical, personal or professional, those things are going to help you. One, understand what success means, and two, to find success. And then, you know, in terms of these, we're, you know, this is a science and technology-specific discussion, and it's important to, you know, to uh, fair advertising. You know, Charlie mentioned it earlier that this is a, a difficult profession to get into, watching his daughter go through medical school. It's this is hard work. It's hard work, um, but it's worth it. It's worth it. And so that's another piece of this is to work hard. You know, uh, Mike and I are wearing our mission patch, and this is actually a piece of artwork that was created by, uh, by hand by an artist. And one of the things Mike and I really appreciated about him when we first started researching this artist uh, one thing he said that stuck with us both is that process is more important than talent. And I think that's true for every science and technology worker to understand that that educational process, while it may be difficult, it's where your talent is going to come from. So it's worth it. Thank you so very much. Um, I just want to let everyone know it's seven o'clock. I know you're all very busy and we really appreciate having you here with us. Um, I guess, you're welcome to sign out. If there's anything left you'd like to stay, you're welcome to say it in case we've missed anything. While everybody's uh, thinking about what they want to do, you know, one of the things that, that we've implied, in, I think all of us have, make a friend. Uh, you know, when I look at, Victor and I are involved right now with, with trying to help people in general, but my experience has been Frequently, when somebody's having a difficult time, whether it's racially, uh, gender, sexual orientation, or anything else, it's they're trying to tackle the problem or the issue all by themselves. And they don't seek help. They don't seek a friend. You can't make it. Life is not intended to be lived by one person, you know, alone. That's just not the way it's intended. Um, we just, we learned in the military a long time ago if you're going to put an, an African-American in a, in a squadron and you want to guarantee that they stand a chance of success, make it two uh, at least. But, you know, when you put somebody in a situation that you know is going to be demanding and they're all by themselves, then they've got to go out and try to find someone who, with whom they can bond. So for all of us, I think we've all learned that lesson. You got to, you know, you got to have a friend. So, so make, make a friend or friends, and if you see somebody who's struggling, recognize that fact and recognize the, one of the reasons they're struggling is because they may not, they may not have anybody else. They don't have, to, they don't have to know what I'm going through, but they can empathize with me and reach out and say, hey, I, I don't know what you're, what, what you're going through. I have no idea, and I never will understand, but 
let me help you. You know, let me come talk to me or I just just let rain on me or do whatever you want to do. But but find a friend for yourself and be a friend to somebody else. And, and, and a lot of these problems we have, I think, will eventually go away. Thank you so much, Charlie. Um, and thank you all for being here with us. It's seven o'clock. Um, we, have, we have many, many questions, but uh, we want to respect your time and let you, uh, let you go if you need to go. So, so Karen, I, I am going to go ahead and sign off, but I, I thought I would, uh, before I do, I, I did have you know, one last comment. And, and one of the things that I love about being a part of a crew that's, that's getting ready to go up into space uh, that's going to go spend up to six months or longer um, in a very confined space. Uh, one of the things I love about this particular crew that I'm getting go, ready to go do that with is we are very diverse. Um, you know, you've got Victor and myself, we've got uh, Shannon Walker, and we've got uh, Suichi Noguchi. We all have different backgrounds um, and, and biases or racisms. There's no place for it on a crew. Um, we are depending on each other to keep each other safe, um, to go up and have a successful mission, to, to get back to our families. And if any of that exists on this crew, it's just not going to work out. And, and so um, the, the way, you know, getting to be a part of this, um, it, just, it just gets you focused and, and you find the good in each other. And, you know, we've each... Uh, bring strengths and weaknesses to this crew, but I, I think the thing I love about it is, and, and we just had a sim the other day, where we were at one of those moments where we we were working a problem, and and we had to work the problem, and it was just beautiful because each person on that crew brought a piece of the solution together, and none of us would have got there by ourselves, but we were able to get there. Um, as, as a single unit. And, and so that's, that's one of the, the just joys of, of being a part of a crew and of the space, the human spaceflight program. Thank you so much, Mike. We appreciate your time, spending precious bit of your personal time with us and all your insights. And we're so excited to see you launch next month. So thank you and good night. Thanks very much, Karen. It's been great. And Victor, any last words um, for us or our audience? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I am grateful that you guys put this on and thank you for allowing us to, to share a little bit and to, to try to create a sense of community, especially now in these challenging times where we're physically distancing but trying to still have social connections. Um, thank you to Charlie and to Ed for your mentorship over the years and your friendship. Um, it means the world to me. I, I'm still new enough at this where just to see your faces makes my day. So this is uh, amazing to, to be on a panel with you. It's, it's just amazing. Um, and, and Karen, thank you for your, your, your uh, assistance in this and your time spent getting ready for it. And Dana for, for making this happen, reaching out to us. Um, you know, I think as physicians, you can all understand, um, the power of, say, if you're going to come to Houston and practice medicine, or better yet, let's say Laredo, Texas, you would understand the importance of uh, learning a little Spanish. It will help you as a physician. 
And I think that we all have something like that that we can do to move the ball forward that helps us to, to see the humanity in other people and help them connect and see the humanity in us. And I think that's what this is about. If you can see the humanity on the other end of the exam table, on the other end of the interview table, on the other end of the dinner table, then like Charlie said, we're making friends, we're building community, and then this problem won't have anywhere to hide. Um, we don't have to be perfect people for us to love and respect one another. And that's really what this is about, seeing the humanity in each other and loving and respecting each other, um, even when it's tough to do so. Thank you so much and we appreciate your time with us and we wish you the best on your flight. We are gonna be watching eagerly, I promise. Thank you. Thank you all and see you another time there, Dr. Dwight. Uh, thank you for all your good words, Charlie. Uh, Karen, thank you for including me uh, in this. This has been enlightening for me. I've, I've learned a lot, believe me. So thank, thanks to everybody there. Much um, and have a good night. And uh, Mr. Dwight, thank you so much again for taking your time um, and sharing your time with us and to you as well, yeah, Victor. Yeah. It was well worth it. Thank you. Um, and I'll, unless there's anything else you'd like to add, Mr. Dwight, I'll turn it over to Dana. No, I don't, I don't have anything else to add. Uh, I, uh, you know, I appreciate what Charlie said. Uh, I, I, I was sitting there with an amen about uh, having two uh, people instead of just appointing uh, one person <laughs> and two. <laughs> I thought that was, uh, that was, uh, that was good. Uh, and, uh, and to all the students, if, if there are any left, uh, uh, you know, I, I would never have become the sculptor that I became had I not had that earlier experience in my life. And, and so if, if any of them are still listening, uh, 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 you know, keep your mind open is, is what I would advise them to do. Because every one of these experiences you have in life build up to, uh, to, to you know, fulfilling dreams and things. So, so, so that's... That'll be my final word, and, uh, and I appreciate being involved. Thank you. Thank Thanks, you. and I'll turn it over to Dana now. Thank you all. That was uh, amazing. And I, I, you know, we're, we're all going to be sitting here watching, watching the, uh, the two astronauts on their mission and uh, rooting for all the others who have supported them over the years. So thanks, Karen. I appreciate your help with all this stuff. And, and I want to, I really do want to thank our panelists. I, I can't express how grateful our team is to have, have you as our heroes, our mentors and our teachers. Um, there were a number of fantastic questions and we unfortunately didn't get a chance to get to all of them. So I sincerely apologize to all of you for that, but your interest and engagement is amazing and encouraging. And to you as an audience and to the panelists, I want to thank you for being a beacon of hope in this absurdly stressful and scary time. Um, I am hoping that this panel is just the beginning of the conversation and I'm excited to see it continue. So thank you all for being a part of this now and in the future. And I wanna introduce one more uh, person from our team who's the current vice president of the Aerospace Medicine Association's student and resident organization, uh, Dr. Emily Stratton. 
who was going to give us all a, uh, a little information about that organization and how it helps students and trainees in the aerospace medicine field. And Emily, if you are uh, available. Yes. All right. Um, hi, everyone. Um, and I just wanted to also say, you know, thank you to our speakers um, for their time and mentorship today. Um, it was really a great panel. I learned a lot. Um, so as uh, Dr. Levin said, um, my name is Emily Stratton, and I'm the current fellow of aerospace medicine at the Mayo Clinic. But most importantly for this event, I am the vice president of the Aerospace Medicine Student and Resident Organization, also known as AMSRO, um, one, of the, one of the sponsoring organizations for today. Um, AMSRO is an international advocate for aviation, space, and extreme environmental medicine for many different types of students, as well as residents and fellows. Um, so thank you everyone for joining us today. Um, I wanted to alert you to some really great things that are happening through AMSRO and its diversity committee. There is a diversity scholarship program aimed at underrepresented pre-medical and medical students to be used for aerospace medicine ex um, experiences. Applications open December 2020. Um, so please check out or email AMSRO, so A-M-S-R-O dot diversity at gmail.com. I'm sure Dr. Levin will put that in the comments um, for more information. Additionally, AMSRO is working to facilitate an ongoing virtual diversity speaker series and we'll be presenting at the Aerospace Medical Association 2020 conference on the importance of diversity, equality, and inclusion. So thank you again for joining us today and letting me um, say a few words. Thanks for, uh, thanks for all you do. And I also really want to thank uh, Nick Nelson. I don't know if you're on and we can flip on your screen just to say hi. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the diversity committees, a little bit more about what we've been doing um, just from the diversity side? Sure. Um, we have been, there's been a huge um, revitalization and enthusiasm about the diversity committee and getting um, everyone more involved and leveraging kind of the different arms that AMSRO has um, in different parts of the nation, um, trying to get in the community, trying to get the word out, spread the word about aerospace medicine, because a lot of people still kind of have a question mark over their head when you mention it. Um, this scholarship is a really important step because it's um, not only just a monetary gift, it's also gonna involve mentorship and um, membership and you know access to the community, which is what makes aerospace so strong, like so full of potential. And uh, yeah, our panel is going to try to address like the very um, established evidence-based arguments for diversity and like different ways that we can try to uh, reach students earlier in the pipeline. Thank you so much, Nick. Um, and to all our students, um, wherever you come from, whatever background you come from, we really welcome you to um, look for amsro.org, that's the Aerospace Medicine Students and Residents Organization. Um, we welcome everyone, we'll teach you more about aerospace medicine, how to get involved, and um, we're really looking to see what we can do to make future flight doctors, astronaut doctors, and astronauts of the future um, in general and also more diverse. Um, and Dana, I guess you want to tell us a little bit more about exploration medicine? Well, I, I think you guys are you guys are really the ones that have to have the word on this one. But uh, this podcast is another another opportunity for people to learn more about uh, aerospace and exploration medicine and to keep the conversation going. So 
Um, thank you all for attending. I'm really happy that you are all able to see this and I, I look forward to continuing these conversations in the future. So that's it for us. Thanks so much. And I really want to say, um, Nick, Dana, Emily, and everyone who's been on, this has been a lot of work and um, thank you so much for all your work behind the scenes to make this happen. It's a privilege and I'm glad we could share this with everyone. We'll do it again. Looking and thank forward. you, Karen, for, uh, for getting all of this together and, and started in the first place. Yes, thank you, Dr. Ong. It's been an amazing, amazing panel. And Karen, have a good shift tonight. <laughs> Wear your masks, stay different, distant. I don't want to see you in the hospital. Have a good night, everyone. Have a good night, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for listening to the Exploration Medicine Podcast. Please consider donating to the podcast to help us keep up with our expenses and take a moment to subscribe and leave us a review. It helps us reach a wider audience. A sincere thank you to our panelists, Ed Dwight, Charles Bolden, Michael Hopkins, Victor Glover, and Karen Ong, along with the AMSRO Diversity Committee and Nick Nelson's work to make this panel a reality. Additionally, I want to thank Bond Swansionis for their assistance as a production coach and Fenella Kennedy for their generous feedback. And of course, our production team, Sultana Pefli and Jeremy Seeker. Music is written and recorded by David Keogh and is available on his website through ReverbNation.com. More information on each episode, including a comments board, is available on the website at ExplorationMedicine.com. And as always, feel free to reach out with questions, comments, corrections, thoughts, or anything else by emailing us at podcast at ExplorationMedicine.com. Thanks for listening, and see you soon.